Hey everyone and welcome to the podcast. This episode is proudly brought to you by well, anybody. We are currently looking for a sponsor for the Road to Success podcast. So if you, an organization or business you know or are involved with, might be interested in finding out some more information about sponsoring the Road to Success podcast, then please contact me online either via mattylovell.com or you can find me on Facebook or Instagram too. We can start to go over how things might work and have you or your business sponsoring the Road to Success podcast. Until then, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today for part two of my conversation with the incredible Sean Thomas. All right, Sean Thomas. Thank you again. Um, I guess this is the uh, the second part of a of a of our conversation, and um, welcome back, and, and and thank you once again for doing this. Um, in the first part, I guess we, we essentially focused on um, on your career, and you know we we, we talked about um, you know I guess your, your your to sort of I guess surmise it. It was sort of you know motivating and engaging employees to increase product. Productivity and um, and and the key element of that was um, you know changing the way people feel about work and um, you had some um, outrageously uh, tremendous results and um, uh, throughout your career and on large organisations that you had um, some you know you know almost tenfold improvements and in, in what they were doing. Uh, we touched a little bit on um, you know on 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 the mentoring side, which has been a big part of your life as well, um, and we also um, you know touched a little bit on the on the book that you've written um, just. recently recently as well. And, and a couple of times throughout that conversation, Sean, you, you talked about, um, you know, the last 18 months and, and you'd been um, you'd been feeling unwell. So maybe before we start, if you sort of want to maybe elaborate what you're talking about when you're talking about your illness. Okay. Well, thanks for having me back, Maddie. Um, well, I would consider myself a relatively healthy fellow up until um, late September 2019. And then I, I had a particular day, by chance it was my wife and I were having our 28th wedding anniversary and met in Auckland. We went for a walk and I, I struggled on the walk with shortness of breath uh, to get back to the hotel. And um, well, we speculated about what that what might be, but didn't think too much of it. However, it became the situation became significantly worse the following day and and then the following day. So I ended up having a see my GP and having a chest X-ray, which revealed a rather large lump in the middle of my chest, just above my heart. And this has transpired to be cancer, um, for which I had some initial treatment in late 2019, some radiotherapy and a little bit of chemotherapy down in Christchurch. Unfortunately, I reacted very badly to the chemotherapy, so ended up just mainly using radiotherapy. And... Um, Anyway, it's transpired that this was a terminal situation. We we knew right at the start that that was likely the case. It was only the timing that was a question. And I've now ceased all treatment. That uh, in late 2020 we ceased treatment, and now I'm under palliative care, so just managing pain um, and comfort. Wondering yeah. if it was real sort of timeline, <laughs> except things are clearly trending deathward. There's no risk about that. It's probably months, not weeks, I'd like to think, but it's probably not that many. 
Wow, that's a. Um, I mean, you know, I guess part of this conversation is, and, and uh, the, the reason of this conversation is because you're so open about it, and um, and you know, I think that your, um, you know, the life you've 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 lived and your personality type, sort of, you know, with this interest in in in, in psychology and human beings, but also the sort of mechanical engineering side of you means that you talk about this with. Um, you know, we talked about it last time, a very sort of stoic approach, but still at the same time, like, um, you know, obviously I know about your illness, but it's it's still, you know, saddens to, to, to hear you talk like that. But uh, again, I'm, I'm very grateful for your openness and, um, and you know, to, to I guess to, 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 to preface this, you know, you, you very much, you know, said to me, I'll preface this to the audience, you very much said to me that, you know, you're happy to answer questions and talk about this as openly as, as you are. So again, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. So, um, you know, and I guess my, I'll second that by saying, and my hope is that, um, that our conversation today can uh, be used for other people going through similar um, similar types of things, whether that's the um, you know it's the person themselves who's who's had a diagnosis or someone you know close to that person. So, uh, thank you again, and um, you know you, you sort of brushed over it, but um, you know you've written an amazing blog, I guess, essentially called uh, on the subject of death, and. Um, f- from reading that, it almost felt like you kind of accepted the fact that you had cancer in the car park of the doctor surgery in about five minutes. Is, is that the case? Yes, that, that is the case. And I guess just to provide a little background to that, as a, from as a child, I was always very open about everything. In fact, if there's anything my parents, then followed by my now wife, would wish, it was that I wasn't so happy to chat about, about anything. And and there is a joke in our house. It's called the forbidden topics. And it's all the things that I'm not allowed to talk about at dinner parties. And when we go out, my wife polices us very strictly because I'll happily talk about anything. I, I don't feel any like a sense of shame or um, inappropriateness. If someone wants to talk about something, I will talk about it. And that's always been, that, that's always been the case. When I was young, um, I was exposed to death like most young people are with grandparents dying and you know, yeah, people becoming unwell and you go through those normal experiences. But in, from my late teens to early 20s, I worked for a few years as a radiographer um, in A&E as much as I could because that's where you got your, where your money for working long shifts and working weekends and things. And there I got exposed a lot to the reality of our mortality. I mean, you, you can't go through many weeks without seeing people being dreadfully injured or or dying. And it really made me think about it. So from a very young age, I was curious about this idea of death. And it dawned on me um, that people generally lived as if they weren't going to die, that generally as a species in our society, particularly Western society, we carry on as if we're never going to die. And I found this almost amusing that there was a, some this somehow reticence to talk about something so obvious and so real. And over the years, I, I read more about well, general science. I was interested in all aspects of science, but in particular existentialism and, and this idea that humans can be in denial or tend to be in denial about death. So it's something I've thought about a great deal over the years. In fact, I, I reflected a lot long before I became unwell. I wonder how... I would respond if I was to discover I was about to die. And I always imagined with you know, limited confidence, because 
things are sometimes different in the moment. But I always imagined I'd be relatively calm about it. So when I was presented with the likelihood I was about to die when I first sat down with the GP, which is only a few days after I felt perfectly healthy, and I saw my chest X-ray, and I knew immediately when I saw it that this was a very unhappy situation. Well, yeah, I was totally fine about it. And to my great surprise, I went and sat in the car park and sent a text to my wife to let her know I wouldn't be traveling away the next day for work as I had planned to and let a friend know that things were a bit average. You knew I was <laughs> not feeling too well. And then I just decided to sit in the car until I had a plan. I just didn't want to drive off aimlessly. So I knew my life plan now wasn't going to be, you know, working in my business and doing some of the other things I intended to do. And it didn't take very long at all. It was, in fact, a very easy realization that my new plan was simply to make this whole process as easy for my wife and family and friends. That was it. And that took a very few minutes. And as soon as I had that clearly settled in my head, well, that's it. Well, let's get on with it then. So I, I um, went to the supermarket and bought a nice lunch, much nicer than I normally have. Thought, given they might be fewer, <laughs> now I'd make them better. I uh, went home, had lunch, and then literally got a pen and paper out and started thinking through how this process might look. And um, it was really good in the first instance because it gave me something to focus on. But it, the, the reality was, uh, for whatever reason, the acceptance just came very easy. I couldn't see the point. In fact, I never really have seen the point of being particularly upset about something that's inevitable. You, know, you might as well focus on what you're going to do about it rather than getting upset about it. Yeah, um, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a lovely concept. It's not, not always, um, it's, it's easy to say, but not always hard to put into practice. And you seem to have a very, you know, we talked about stoicism in our last conversation and maybe we had a slightly different definition, but, um, you know, the, the definition I have of stoicism is, is accepting reality and, and not just accepting it, but embracing it because, you know, it's, you can't change anything and, and you focus your energy on the things you can control. And it seems that, um, you know, that you managed to do that very, very, um, you know, almost immediately. What were some of the things that you wrote down? Like you went home and you took out a pen and paper and started to, you know, sort things out. What were you writing down? Oh, some really um, pragmatic things like the passwords <laughs> to my computer <laughs> and phone. <laughs> so when I to sort my affairs out, if this should end abruptly, because I was mm -hmm. by that at this stage was declining by the day significantly. So, and in fact, I nearly ended in that first week. I had a major medical event within, within a week of being entirely healthy, which, you know, nearly was the end. I was very lucky to survive that. So I became, you know, very, very early on, I knew that the time was tight. So mm -hmm. pretty, really ultra pragmatic things like that, but also making a list of all the things I could think of, you know, directorships I needed to exit, shareholders, matters to sort out in companies I was involved with, charities I was involved with, sports clubs I was involved with, all, all the things I should really hand over so I wasn't leaving a problem. I mean, it was only a very few weeks after my father had died, three weeks from my father's death to my diagnosis. So I'd barely finished, you know, sorting out his funeral in his house and, you know, I hadn't had a moment really to stop and breathe following that. And I was painfully aware about how, difficult it was to wrap up someone's affairs and I desperately didn't want to leave such a uh, challenge for my wife 
So it was those very pragmatic things I wrote down, but but also I, I wrote down a few goals around, you know, what was, what did, how did I want other people to feel about this? And that, in fact, I coined this little phrase that day, which is, I'm not happy to die, but will die happy. And I coined that little phrase as simply a way to communicate to those around me how I felt about it and kind of how I wanted them to feel about it. Yeah. I'm not saying this is a happy event, but it, it need not be any less happy than, than what it is. Yeah, and I, I think that's um, you know again true to your, your testament. It's it's um, you, know, you said at first that you're 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 most concerned about making this an easy process for those around you, and um, you know those those small but you know very pragmatic steps um, can certainly make it um, you know ease the you know the 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 the, the responsibility I guess of of, of those close to you. Um, re- reading your blog, um, it sounds like one of the first things that you did was. Um, Build your own coffin from some wood in your shed. Yes, well, I, I had intended to build a boat. In fact, the plans are still sitting upstairs for my boat. Um, the boat ended up being built, by the way, just not by me. I wasn't well enough. It was just a small five point three meter sailing boat. I built a few boats over the years with boys that I've mentored, um, and I had another young fellow who was currently twelve, and we were going to build this boat together, um, but. I had leftover wood from a previous boat building uh, efforts, and I had an enthusiasm to build something, and there was no way my physical health was up to building anything meaningful. You know, I was very limited for how long I could stand and what I could carry. So I thought, well, I could probably manage a coffin. <laughs> That'll have to be my pseudo-boat. So I built a very simple coffin. I really couldn't find the enthusiasm to build something too flash that was single-use and burnt. So I... Um, not, it's been built out of literal, literally bits and pieces I found around the yard and the shed. But a friend of mine, Mike Ward, who's an artist, has done a magnificent job of painting it up. Um, so look, it looks spectacular. It's um, and we've made a big sail for it, which and written on the sail is, "You are strong when people feel safe around you," which is one of my life mantras. And, an important message I'd like to hand across to the children I'm involved with in general and particularly at the Karate Club. And that sale will go to the Karate Club after the event and um, will be my little memento there. It was a curious process for others, me building the coffin. I remember going out the first time I went out from my shed and asked my wife to come out and I lay down on a piece of plywood and gave her a marker pen and said, can you use a little outline, please? And it was a bit confronting for her to realise that when I explained why, is that I was wanting to make sure I built my coffin big enough. If I had an outline, I just built it around that outline. And I must confess, it did look a little bit like one of those police markings on the road post-trauma when we'd finished, so I could see why. <laughs> it might have been a tad challenge. I feel uh this is. I'm laughing. It's. Uh, I. I feel it's not an appropriate time to laugh, but it's a. It's a funny. Your poor wife. Yeah. <laughs> Can you come and draw around me? And you've got a an outline of a crime scene. Oh yes, goodness. Future crime. Yeah, it's probably a movie yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. And um, and so you, I mean that's a that's a, a wonderful um. You know, you, uh, to, to be able to you know build your own one and and to have it decorated as you wish and the sale and your wishes of that is all um, is all remarkable. And, uh, um, I guess 
my you, you knew you were diagnosed, you know, and you accepted that relatively quickly. W- when did you find out that this wasn't going to be fightable for you? Because um, you know you have a, a very eloquently written quote in your blog, um, and it, you said, "By all means, put up a fight if a fight is to be had. But if the situation is more akin to stopping a tsunami with a roll of paper towels, then maybe save your effort." Yeah, I guess that was very evident to me within a week. When I had the first X-ray, chest X-ray, which just showed a large mass in my chest, there was always a hope that it was something benign. You know, there, there, are, there are cancers and there are growths without going into the details, and you, you can always hope that. However, later that week, I had a CT scan, which showed a lot more anatomical detail more about the morphology and the way it was wrapped around the aorta and interfering with nerves and clearly growing. And plus my health was, like I say, deteriorating very quickly. Um, it was evident that there's nothing benign about this baby. Um, you know, it was very aggressive and and I was not going to make it much longer. In fact, I even though it was only in the first week of October that I had that X-ray in um, – CT scan, it was looking very unlikely that I'd see Christmas, that's for sure. And I was lucky, in fact, that I was able to get down and start treatment soon enough to put a, to put a halt to that rapid growth of the tumour. And, and it did. The, the treatment was very successful, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. It was never a forever um, solution. It was, a, you know, it was a bit of bubble gum and a leak in your boat, and it's going <laughs> to look a lot forever. And and uh, that time has come. So now the tumor's regrowing and my health is deteriorating again. Um, but this time there are no more options. I've had the limit of radiotherapy. Um, there's always a small chance that some you know, some new trial drug or something is presented. We're always asking those questions and we're getting very good support. We're getting occasionally presented with opportunities or having a conversation next week around that with another oncologist and we'll just see, we'll just see what happens but in all likelihood um yeah we're pro- probably exhausted our treatment options yeah and is that a um you know is that a moment when when you sort of you know was it a is that another moment of acceptance when you realize or, or is that you know it sounds like from day one you kind of you know in that first week maybe you'd sort of figured out that um that you know, to use your words, this might have been, you know, paper towels versus a tsunami sort of a situation. Um, or was there, you know, do, do you hope that, do you think about the, is, is there hope or, 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 you know, forward thinking that hopefully something's going to change or happen or um, is it, you know, was there just a whole another, you know, was it a months later after the treatment had finished that you sort of thought, you know, now I have to accept that there isn't going to be a fight? Well, I think I said I accepted it right up front. And one of the things I was very clear about is that there wasn't going to be a fight. I mean, it's people talk about fighting cancer and dealing to it with mental powers. Well, yeah, okay, good. If that works for you, then get into it. We only hear, of course, about the people who survive cancer, the ones who don't, don't have so much to say. And the ones who survive, not always, but often attribute this to their mental powers or a particular um, you know, concoction or treatment or whatever they've had. But I actually don't feel that's 
the case. I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever that being positive and doing everything you can to stay healthy and motivated and have some belief in your future helps. There's no risk about that at all. But I don't believe that through mental power alone you can evaporate an aggressive cancer. You know, it's there. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Um yeah, and I, I think that you know, I just, I just, I guess, my, my, what I'm getting at is, I wonder if there's a, if there's a line where you know, because it is, you know, there is a certain amount of mental will in, in, in that plays itself out in your reality. I believe, I think that you know, the way you approach the world is sort of the way the world you know responds to you, and um, but sometimes you know, you it's much about accepting what's happening and 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 like you said, focusing your efforts. On on the things that you can control and you can influence, um, and um, you know, and that sort of that sort of turning point when you you recognise that um, you know I'm I'm very much you know focused on you know my family or making this an easy process for the people around me, um, and I'm going to put all my time and energy into into that rather than um, you know trying to to fight or or, or, or to to, to Put up a you know some resistance towards this illness. Yeah, you know, I'm very keen to put up some resistance to the illness, but I would phrase it as this, and this is something I said right at the start. I made it very clear to everyone who was closely involved with me, and it was I said this as humour, but I meant it. I only want to die once, and what I meant by that was I didn't want to go through false false hope of allowing myself to believe that there was a cure. Only to discover there wasn't. Then again, allowing myself to believe there was another kid. Only to discover there wasn't. And to go through this process of re-accepting death again and again. Because as resilient as I might be, I don't know what the limit is. And I didn't want to put myself through that cycle. And I didn't want to put my family through that cycle of hope and despair. And I am acutely aware of people I know who have become unwell and died, who didn't accept it and how much harder it has been for their family. And but a particular case where a fellow who was clearly going to die would not accept it and one night said to his son, who was distraught about dad not being well, that he promised him, absolutely promised him and cuddled him, and I will never leave you. I will not die. You know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Well, he died that night. And when I spoke to his wife about it later, you know, over many, many years later, he said the impact on that, on this, not just his son, but the family in general, was difficult. You know, it was impactful. And I did not want to leave any legacy like that. I didn't want to, my children and my wife left with this idea that I wouldn't accept death. I was really unhappy about it. Something could be done, should be done, but wasn't done, and I died. Whoa, that's the farthest from where I want to leave things. Mm-hmm. I wanted to leave them if I possibly could. Not happy to die, but hey, I wasn't flailing and crying, and I was accepting, and if I can accept it, well, then that gives you permission to accept it too. Because sometimes people do need our permission to accept our death. You know, my wife is a GP. It's, you know, she's supposed to make people better. <laughs> it's very tough for her not to be able to play a role in that. 
And for you know, you can imagine how it would be if I was pleading with her to find a solution, find a solution, and we couldn't. How guilty and difficult that may leave or the position it may leave her in. And I, I want, I want things to be as far from that as as sensibly they can. So my acceptance, yes, it's for me. It, may, it does make it easier for me on a day-to-day basis, but it's mostly to allow people around me to accept my death. So that's why I'm very cautious of using the term fight. I say dance. This is a dance to the death, you know, where it's the partner you can't let go of. <laughs> Keep stepping on your toes and, you know, it's going to ruin the night, but you're stuck with dancing with them. You know, I'm, I'm stuck with my cancer, but it's not a – I definitely don't frame it. I don't think about it in terms – of a fight that must be won, or if it's not won, it's lost. No, my cancer will die with me. You know, we're we're locked in together on this one. It's just an unfortunate dance. Yeah, that's a um, a very different way of framing it, um, which I, I think is obviously due to your, you know, the, the way you've you've seen the world and and um, you know all the, the the learning and 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 education you've you've done and completed and I think that's very interesting and I think you know very very helpful and I think that it's so true um you know I've been lucky where I haven't had someone close to me um in a um you know in a situation where you know I've had to accept something but thinking about that as you were talking knowing that if that person was to accept it it does give the the people around them very much that same permission to accept and um and 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 again look at things differently so it's a, a once again a very um you know stoic approach what have other people done that's been really I don't want to say joyful, but helpful for you. You know, you we, you talked you mentioned before about the you know the father and son that you knew, and you know it was very hard for um, you know that son. Obviously, when his dad made that promise, um, if we flip that round, you know, what have family, friends, or you know people you 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 worked with or, or colleagues, what have you know, have any one of them done anything that's been really, um, you know, wonderful and, and um, you know, I don't want to say freeing, but help the sort of approach for you? And I guess the, the motivation for that question is if someone's listening to this and going, you know, um, you know, I, I really, you know, I know someone who's going through a similar situation, how can they help or, or be a part of this sort of journey for them in a, in a helpful manner, if that makes sense? Yeah, look, it does make it's a very reasonable question. For me personally, this may be totally different for someone else. The things I find the easiest, or the, the things that I find most helpful when, when people come to visit me is those who just accept the situation. So I don't need to justify it. Yeah, well, we might have had that in the past, and I've got friends who come to visit. And we barely talk about the death thing. We just talk about, oh, look at the weather and have you been out in your boat? And How's your garden going? Well, the answer is not very well. The possums ate just about everything because I've been out there to defend it. <laughs> um, get netting on and all the rest. I lost every single blueberry and every single grape, which I'm still smarting about. <laughs> and I'm definitely going to try and do something about my fijos and mandarins before those possums come back. But nonetheless, um, the easiest, the thing that's most helpful for me is when people just accept it. I mean, I'm, the thing that's trickiest for me is when. People bring 
are very well-meaning, and I, I'm not being critical here, but to answer your question, I'll simply say they bring a preconceived agenda, and that could be, I know how you feel, you must be feeling this, therefore I will help you with that. And well, well, but I'm not feeling that at all. I'm not, I don't feel that despair. <laughs> no. Like, for example, I don't have a bucket list. I don't, I'm very pragmatic about this, and that's been probably one of the most trickier things for my wife to accept is that I, I'm a very poor investment in my eyes. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why would we spend money on giving me an experience or doing something which will be so, so short-lived? <laughs> Wow. Um, you, you were saying that the, the easiest thing for other people to do is, um, you know, is to, to accept, you know, their acceptance of the, of the, of the reality and um, not coming in with preconceived ideas of, um, you know, of, you know, what they think you feel and need. Yes, I, I guess that's right. The, the most helpful thing for me personally, and it may be different for someone else, is people who, who accept my situation and that I don't, you know, anyway, that's it, that I'm okay with it, not happy about it, okay with it, big, big difference. Hmm. The things I find more difficult are people who come with a strong agenda, for example, um, it's people who tell me, I know how you feel, you must feel this, and then insert various versions of anguish and despair and what have you. Um. Because I don't, I don't feel those things, and, and I do find it tricky to know quite what to say. And I'm sure I've said the wrong thing because I'm not really good about saying the right thing. Yeah, that's um, that's yes, certainly very insightful. And I think um, you know, I mean, I guess it's a journey for other people as much as you. If they're close to you and they're, and they're visiting you, um, you know, it's they 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 are you know wanting to support you and also i guess other people are going through a similar you know you know i don't want to say it's not grief but a a, a journey that they weren't anticipating and they're trying to deal with it themselves and i guess there's a bit of empathy sort of towards that as well yeah that's absolutely right and and look and i have approached things differently to what people expect i'm a little awkward in this regard and I don't know if we've touched on this yet, but this whole example of bucket lists. Many people, I think it was courtesy of a movie, actually, but this idea of having a bucket list is very popular. I'm not the least bit interested in that. I mean, I've been asked many times what my bucket list is, and I don't have one. I don't even have the bucket. You know, I don't see me as a very good investment for new and great experiences because they're not going to be, they're not going to last for very long. I very, I very much like the idea of doing things with my family that mean something to them, experiences they will keep. That's very different. But I don't have a bucket list, and I never wanted a bucket list. When I first heard this idea, when I was healthy many, many years ago, I thought, no way. Because what a bucket list says to me is you didn't live your life. You somehow put it on hold. If you live your life the way you wish to, you'll never have a bucket list because you would have done the things you wanted to do Along the way, of course, there might be some things you miss out doing. Fair enough, but you shouldn't, in my view, say you shouldn't. I didn't want to be in a situation that I would find myself dying one day and go, "Oh no, I wish this, I wish that." And I'm very lucky. I'm grateful to have had the opportunity in my life not to feel that way at all. I, I look back and go, "Whoa, I, I was really bold in business and some charity things I tried and and." And all sorts of things I've done, I've given it heaps. You know, I've, I've 
rolled the dice and failed and <laughs> succeeded and tried and I've lived a good life. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact I don't look over my shoulder and have anything to feel really bad about. You know, I don't look back and there's no terrible wrongs I feel I must right. Apologies if there's someone out there with something I've forgotten about, but um, anyway, mm. uh, the, you've left it too late. But um, I'm actually really pleased that that's the case. I, I look back and smile and say, yep, no, I really, you know, I, I didn't just take a boring job and work in corporate and sit in the corner. You know, I, at a very early age, I struck out on my own and, and was very adventurous and gave lots of things a go, and, and I'm really delighted that I did. So I, I don't sit there with this great urge to have done a lot more than I should have had. The trickiest thing for me to deal with has probably been people turning up with miracle cures, of which I've had some extraordinary proposals, um, which are made with the best intent. And that intent I greatly respect, and, and great, you know, it's good. But you know, I, I, I know that the dinging of a triangle or the touching of a photo probably isn't going to have a cancer. So um, despite the good intent, I tend to be fairly pragmatic and decline them because I, I don't want to not be true to myself. I've always been a very realist, science-based guy. And the last thing I want to do at the end is to sort of betray those values mm. <laughs> in desperation by chasing rainbows. Yeah. I think what you said there about you know, it's a it's an amazing life that anyone has been able to live if they they can look back on it you know in the as it's coming to an end and 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 truly say and I, I believe you with every ounce of my my soul when you say that you know you 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 have you swung big and have enjoyed it and um and you don't regret anything and um you know I, I could think of nothing worse you know the that that's almost haunts me a little bit the fact that you know getting to towards the end of my life and and wishing I'd done things differently or wishing I'd given something a go that I was too afraid of and I think that um you know the fact that you're in that position is a is a huge testament to the you know the way you've lived your life and um to you as a person as a as a um as a remarkable and inspirational um you know point to get to and I I certainly hope um I'm there as well my my, my question would be um, you know, I, I don't want to, um, I'm sure you wouldn't mind, but I don't know exactly your age, but, um, you know, if, if something like this had happened to you, you know, earlier in your life, do you think you would have had the same mindset towards it? Yeah. Well, firstly, I'm very happy to be open about my age. I'm very pleased to be able to say I've only very recently, but nonetheless made it to 58. So. <laughs> Which, from the point of view of my kids, is unbelievably ancient, but right at the moment doesn't seem so old. Look, I am sure if this had happened to me, say, when I was mid-30s with young children and not financially established, and, you know, and leaving a family and then with my wife with young children and in a difficult situation, I would, they would, I would have found that troubling. I don't know. I can only speculate. I don't know how I would have approached personally the acceptance of my death. I, I've always imagined I'd be okay about it from my very early 20s, but with no proof. <laughs> and um, the only time it's been tested now is, you know, middle or slightly later in life, um, which, you know, let's be honest, the longer you go, the easier it gets, at least it should. 
Um, I'm sure it would have been harder in my youth. I can't. I can only speculate. Yeah, I would imagine. You know, that it would have been more difficult practically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very lucky in the current situation that um, whilst I have a bunch of things to sort, you know, it's, it's not leaving behind young children. You know, I've left home. My children have left home and are pretty independent, and wife is in a good position. So. Those challenges aren't there, so I'm allowed to be, I guess, a little bit more selfish and say, okay, yes. I can make it for my own emotional situation. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I'm just sort of, you know, I guess thinking as I'm talking to you, but um, at any time, you know, if you did, you know, if we did find out that, that our time was, you know, getting near that, you, as long as you, I mean, I personally think as long as I thought I'd taken every opportunity that I'd had to date, you know, it's it's not leaving things for tomorrow or next year or five years down the track or whatever it is. And I think, you know, potentially that, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I, I 100% agree with you with regards to, you know, different stages of life and, you know, setting up, you know, family and children and things to is a, is a, is a very important factor. Um, if it was purely a, you know, focusing on, how I approach things, I think that um, at any stage of your life, you can feel you know whether you've you've done the things that you could have done, and you know if you could have done more. And I think that whenever that time comes, if you know that you've done the things that you could have done, it's probably a sense of maybe not relief but satisfaction. Yeah, it helps. It definitely helps. But whether you have or you haven't. If- Truth is, you are facing your end, then you have to face it. And no matter what the situation is, you're better off, in my view, to face it with acceptance than denial, no matter how bad it is. And I remember getting this lesson very early on um, in karate, actually, as a probably, how old would I have been? Mid 20s. I was getting a bit into some lumpy stuff. And, you know, when you go into a fight situation, of course you feel a lot of tension and stress and heart gets going and you run off to the loo and wonder whether you should have done this and start, <laughs> start thinking about maybe you'll take up ping pong if you survive the night. And um, and I remember being told one day by my instructor, these feelings are good that you're feeling. You need to turn what you're feeling from fear into Prepare. I thought, what? And um, and that was an important lesson. And I'm not saying it helped me that night for that particular time, but there's <laughs> more time to process it. But I came to learn that a lot of these emotions we feel that we, oh, anxiety is bad. Oh, you know, fear is bad. You know, worry is bad. No, not necessarily. They may be. They become like anything. You know, too much water is bad drown but um but it, it's normal it's natural and maybe we need to turn these things to our advantage now to a funny a funny way i think the same thing happens well for me with mortality there's a lot of emotion there there's a lot of motivation there um we can turn that to our advantage okay it's all going to end but that doesn't mean we can't use that motivation and that energy all that feeling to for positive things. And I think what I, I have tried to do, there's no doubt that, I mean, there's this great quote out there, nothing sharpens the mind like knowledge of one's imminent death. 
I can't remember exactly who wrote that, but it's it's in one of it's in Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, which I read mm-hmm. many years ago, and um, and that is so true. And with all that sort of newfound motivation and insight <laughs> into the realities of life, why not put it to positive use? So just like once upon a time, I was coached into taking my nervousness instead of seen as a negative thing that was going to make me perform worse on the mat as a positive thing that was there to help me, would help me perform better on the mat. And so when I, I find myself, or for anyone, I would say, if you find yourself in a very difficult situation and you feel these emotions and anxieties, don't presume they're negative. Don't presume they're going to make things worse for you. They may make things better for you. They're there for a reason. Your subconscious is trying to provide you with the energy and motivation to get on and do what's got to be done. Now, the difference is, is it's thinking of a fight-flight situation where you're going to run faster, jump higher, and get away from some toothy, clawy beast. Where, in fact, if you're going to do a piano recital, all those nerves and that physical jumpiness won't help at all if you punk the wrong keys and hmm. play, your, play your piano too fast so you might learn to calm down. But still, there's that surge of energy can be put to good use. And um, I was well aware of that when I, when I knew that I wasn't going to live or what was going to do with this new focus. But I put it into my family and ultimately I wrote a book and did a few other minor things too. But but I tried to put that energy and focus to use. I didn't want it to be, go inward and spiral around and become a, a noise in my head that was problematic. Yeah, again, you've you've reframed something that would traditionally be considered a, a negative and and turned it into a you know fuel for um, you know for, for doing the right things, which is um, again amazing. Um, Marcus Aurelius had a, had a brilliant quote, or it was um, I believe it was attributed to him, but it was just memento more, and it means um, it means remember mortality, and it's that's that's not it's slightly different to what I guess you're talking about, but it was about um, you know re- remembering that you're human and remembering that you're, you're mortal and, um, and using that as, um, I guess, motivation or, or whatever you need to, to try and live the life you have when you have it. Look, yeah, and that's a great quote and, that, and that's great advice. I mean, I've done many talks over the years on a variety of topics, but one of them is existentialism. And one of the things I start the talk with is the idea of the mortality horizon. And I ask people, hey, who would be here at my talk today if you knew for a fact you were going to die at midnight tonight? And of course, everyone laughs. And I agreed, you wouldn't be here. You'd find something better to do. The talk isn't that good, and neither are the jokes. And then we say, what if you knew you were going to die in a month's time, or three months' time, or a year's time? At what point would knowledge of your certain death in the future stop you being here today? Because that is your mortality horizon. We all push the idea of our mortality over the horizon out of view. So we can live our day as if we're not going to die. Because it's in, it's interesting to think about how much your life would change if you knew for a fact you were going to die in a month, three months, six months, a year, two years, whatever. Pick your time and think about it. Because I think that it's right to allow awareness of our mortality to come into our lives and let that influence what we do. Clearly, if we knew we were going to die in a day, we wouldn't go to work. I don't know, what, what, what you, would you do? It's a question for each person to answer. 
But I think it's an interesting exercise to sit down every now and then and just reflect on that. Yes, we are mortal. How should that change what I'm doing today? And just pick a horizon where your death is in view and just reflect on that. Yeah, and I guess it's a, um, you know, there's a balance there somewhere, isn't it? Where you've got to be, you know, you do have to, you know, it's it's quite um, to live your life like you're not going to die is um, balancing that with um, I have responsibilities and I have to make sure that, you know, if we all knew we were going to, you know, die tomorrow, you would live your life today a lot differently. And you might die tomorrow, but at the same time, you also have to do things today that are going to put you in a position that if you don't die tomorrow, you're still going to be able to eat and, you know, and, and cooperate in society and, um, you know, and, and, and do, you know, complete your responsibilities. Responsibilities, and it's a you know that idea of a horizon is very interesting because we don't know how far away it is, and completely ignoring it is the wrong thing. But also treating our lives like um, you know it's not practical to, to to necessarily live every day like it is your last. That is absolutely right, and the trick here is well, here's a reality: denying our mortality is a necessary madness. It's something. We must allow ourselves to deceive, to be deceived about in order to get on and do what needs to be done. Well, you're quite right. If you thought you were going to die tonight and you only focused on that, but then you didn't. You, you might have cleaned the fridge out and have nothing for tomorrow. <laughs> Probably about alcohol at least. And um, so it's not a case of either living entirely in denial of one's mortality or living entirely in fear and aware of one's mortality. Otherwise, the fear of death becomes a fear of life. And that's a real yes. risk. People are scared to try things. I might hurt myself or I might die. Well, you don't want to be there. You don't want mortality fear to become a fear of life. So my suggestion to people when we have these talks is that they live in either camp permanently, but they spend a little bit of time in each camp. So by all means, live your life normally, like you're never going to die. Your mortality is pushed over the horizon. But maybe occasionally, once a month, go for a walk or do whatever works for you. And just reflect on the fact that you will die one day. Allow your subconscious to spin a few cycles on that and float some ideas through for you that might change. You might, for example, by doing that, you know, think to yourself, you know what? I'm going to go and do that walk, one of the great walks that I've always thought about doing. I'm going to, in my case, build that small boat and go sailing and camping around the sounds. or whatever is your thing that you would like to do, by just allowing yourself to spend a little bit of time contemplating the reality of the situation, which might be a little cold and scary at times, but just spending a little bit of time there might just help inform your main life. So when the time does come, you go, you know what, I have ticked off some of the things I really wanted to do. Because if you live in absolute denial, which most of us do, and let's be honest, the modern world allows us to do this in a way that wasn't possible for our grandparents and before people, people before them. I mean, you can eat whatever you like now without having to break something's neck and skin it, pluck it, cook it. You know, you can buy it in a can or get it ready made in a paper bag for you through a little window. You reach out in your car and there comes your meat meal. Mm. We can live in a way these days where our, our animalness and our mortality, we, ne we never see or touch death or the tougher, more difficult aspects of life. So we can drift further away into this fake world of denying immortality. We can perfume away our animal smells and we can pluck out all the hair and 
all sorts of other things that might make us look like an animal. Modern life allows us to drift further into this fantasy of immortality than we've ever been able to previously do. And I don't think we've, as a society, thought that through very well. Well, What are the implications for drifting off more and more into this slightly fantastical and these days perhaps virtual world? Mm. I think it's very healthy to walk a few steps in reality on our journey, just just get off the track sometimes and get amongst the bushes for a bit and get back on the track by all means, but allow yourself to see both sides. Yeah, as you did right. There's the two um, very sort of paradoxical ideas and trying to balance them. Some, like most things in life, the, a balance of somewhere in the middle is, is the nice way and, and maybe a, a, a walk in nature once a month to, to reflect on the idea that we, you know, we are you know, mortal and this won't be forever is a, um, is a, is a helpful idea. Um, you talked about existentialism a couple of times, and um, one of the things that you wrote about in your blog, um, and and you know you're clearly very well researched and read, and and, and very intelligent, and um, again you've a very unique sort of position, I guess. But one of the things you you, you mentioned was that um, as you gained a bigger picture of reality, um, your absolute insignificance in the broader landscape became very apparent and your concern with your own existence completely diminished. Can you explain that a bit more? Yes. Um, I think it's absolutely normal to think of ourselves as the centre of the universe because when we're born, that's all we know about, right? I mean, one of the curious things to witness, if you ever happen to see it, is when a baby sees another baby for the first time, occasionally, it doesn't happen all the time, babies are raised in a in a situation, there's no babies around them. And they rightfully believe they're the only baby in the universe. Why would they think anything else? It's just them and all of these big friendly people who feed them and wipe them and entertain them. And when that baby first sees another baby for the first time, you can just see the intent look and the holy moly, there's another one. And while we may not all have experienced that, we all have grown up as cared for young babies, we hope, thinking that we're probably slightly more important and special than we are in the greater scheme of things. And one of the big questions for each of us in life is just how far we get through life before that bubble has burst. And, in fact, whether it has ever really burst. Again, modern life allows us to get much further through life feeling pretty special. And sometimes as adults, we find ourselves and people around us doing all sorts of things to still be that really special person. It's one of the motivations to go to a restaurant and be waited on and have all our needs met. Not entirely unlike a toddler in a high chair. And it's funny that we still crave that. We still value that as an independent, educated adult. What I found intriguing, and I had a very mechanistic view on this, I guess of I was a young lad today. I definitely have an autistic spectrum disorder sticker put on my forehead. You know, I saw life in a very mechanical, matter-of-fact way right from the get-go. And that coupled with a bit of reading about science. I, mean, I can remember just being fascinated to discover how many planets and stars and how big space was at some point in my youth. And then thinking, huh, why is Earth so special then? There's probably a bazillion of them out there. And then I started reading about 
evolution and realizing that the whole likelihood of hum- humans existing was such a roll of the dice. I mean, if it wasn't as one example for an asteroid knocking a few reptiles on the head, but we as mammals never would have got much bigger than a, than a burger because, you know, McDonald's burger because that's, you know, the biggest mammal on the planet at the time of the dinosaurs was only a few hundred grams because we were just too tasty. You know, it's <laughs> got eaten. Mm. <laughs> and we never, ever would have evolved with those big munchy mammal you know, reptiles around. So the whole thing was just such a massive roll of the dice. I failed to see why we were, like it's not like we were preordained, and some people will disagree with me, I realize, but to own the planet. You know, we're just a species that may or may not have existed and by chance did, and many Mm. others didn't. I mean, one of the things that really surprised me, because I, like, when I started reading about evolution, I just presumed that everything the way it was today was the way it was meant to be, and everything prior was just a path towards today. And to realize that there are all these other evolutionary paths that didn't make it for some reasons of dramatic climate change, could have been through volcanic activity or asteroid impact or whatever, they just missed their chance through bad luck. But in fact, life on Earth today could have been unbelievably different in many, many ways. And it was never ever necessarily destined to be like it is. That randomness really surprised me. And it gave me a new perspective about how important I was or wasn't. Um, and then I, I guess I just formed the view that as a species, we're not necessarily any more important than any other species. We just happen to be a bit more gifted at manipulating our environment. Not the only ones who do it, but we just do it very well. And it, it just caused me to reflect on this idea that my personally, I was actually very insignificant. And I didn't find that frightening. Uh, in fact, I found it liberating. Wow. What a, an amazing coincidence that I'm here. Why not make the most of it? Rather than seeing my insignificance as something belittling and demotivating, I saw it as something as highly motivating and a massively bright and brilliant opportunity that the very most should be made of. And it helped me see my life as, well, if it's the true for me, it's obviously true for everybody. So why wouldn't I not only do the very best for me, but why wouldn't I do the very best for those around me. And gosh, why not build as good a community as I can and play my role in that? And it's, that's been one of my motivations for getting involved in various community groups and mentoring and doing the various things I've done to help people over the years is, hey, this is the most fantastic, surprising opportunity. It, it, it didn't have to be, so let's make the most of it. You know, it's like we've won lotto, man. <laughs> Yes. Oh, do we? Why? Even, even, even the fact of, um, you know, that you're talking about, you know, a, a step bigger as well as far as evolution. But even the fact of, of, you know, the, you know, you, you being the single human being that was that was born, uh, conceived, you know, in the in the process, and then being born, um, you know, out of you know, out of a one in a, I don't know, must be billions and billions or trillion chance of actually you being the human being that came out um, from, you know, after being conceived is, is remarkable. And and the way you framed it again is, is not as a scary thing about your insignificance, but how wonderful and almost, um, you know, lucky we are to be where we are. And, you know, you've got one chance at this and you might as well, you know, make the most of it. Um, how has your understanding of that affected the way you've thought about dying 
a lot. If I, I think that if I thought that I was individually really important, and then my death would seem more significant in the bigger scheme of things. But I don't, I don't see my death as a really bad thing. I see my life as a really good, great opportunity thing. I, I, so I see it the other way around. And, um, and I remember many years ago, I can't remember which musician it was, but um, he was being interviewed. And it was a fairly flippant comment he made about you know, death. And he said, well, I, most people think about themselves as being alive for a, a little while and then dead for a long while. I think of it the other way around. I was dead for a long while. Now I'm alive for a little while. And this is the end of it. <laughs> And it made me laugh. I think, what a funny thing to say, but what a great tiny insight. And what he was really saying was, this is it, man. Of course I'm going to party and kick my heels up because I think he'd been asked a question about being maybe a little bit more responsible one day. Some aging rocker and his reply was, get lost. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) I'm making the most of it, man. Okay, I'm not a rocker and I don't don't live my life the way he does. But I found... I, I found that the concept of my insignificance made my life experience so much more precious that that was to be cherished more than my death was to be feared or regretted. And, um, you know, I still feel that way. And I still am incredibly grateful for the life I've had. And that's what I I focus on. It's not a case I nearly said choose to focus on. Well, I don't think there's a choice in it. It's, it just happens to be the way I am. It's a natural endpoint of me and and my life experience and my education. You know, I've made an effort to try and understand the bigger picture, and and having having some grip on that makes me just so grateful for the, any life, any life at all. But in particular, my life. You know, I'll be selfish for a moment. I'm very grateful that I got to exist, and it wasn't all bad. That's just magnificent. And we should all be happy about it. I mean, satisfaction is always measured against expectation. I, I've used this example for 30 years talking to clients, and, um, and that is of my daughter washing my car because this actually happened. I'll get the numbers wrong because I can't remember the numbers, but my daughter helped when she was little help wash the car. And unbeknown to me, she'd had a discussion with my wife about how much she'd get paid. And I just didn't know about that. My wife and I had neglected to share this information between us. So she had a number in her head. I'm going to make up a number. Say it was $10. And um, I gave her five. So she's bitterly unhappy. <laughs> and I didn't know why initially she was so unhappy. But transpired that my wife had suggested she, she would have got more than I gave her. But if it was the other way around, she's expecting five. And I gave her 10, she'd be really, really happy. But if she's expecting nothing and I gave her five, she'd be really, really happy. So in actual fact, whether she's happy or not, it's got nothing to do with how much she's given. It's what it is relatively. And with life, I think one of the things that's, if we start off expecting that life should be, I should get this, I have these expectations, I'm entitled to, and I expect to have own a house, I expect to be this wealthy or whatever our expectations are, we risk being very disappointed. My view on life, and I've always encouraged myself to see it this way, is that absolutely anything is magnificent. <laughs> and not to have too many expectations, because that might 
you might stop enjoying life or it might constrain what you try and what what you aspire to do because your expectations are over on this path. And maybe if you just followed your nose, you might have ended up on a different path and enjoyed life a lot more. So I've tried along the way just to accept whatever I've got and be very happy with it. When I go fishing. Well, it's great. Didn't catch any fish today. When we get smelly and put a bit of bait, won't have to gut any fish. Well, it's handy. Get one fish, that's magnificent. You get five, it's even better. But if I go out there expecting five fish every time, well, you know, I may not always be very happy about it. So I, I choose to treat fishing as something to do on the water. And if you get a fish, it's a bonus, just by way of a slightly silly example. Mm. But certainly when it comes to life, I've, I've early on encouraged myself to see life itself as a magnificent, magnificent coincidence to be enjoyed no matter what is dished up along the way. That's a beautiful quote right there and uh, and a remarkable way to to see the world and you know understanding that your expectations and you know I was you know I've heard similar stories repeated and I share one as well often but you know understanding that your own happiness is a is a nothing more than a result of how expectations play out according to reality is a is a is a truth that can can dramatically affect the quality of anyone's life, I think, and um, and you know, tr- trading expectations for um, gratitude and for joy, um, you know, and, and just pure um, yeah, gr- gratitude of, of of what you do have um, can certainly make a huge difference in um, in anyone's life. I would I would think. Yeah, look, I, I learned this the hard way. I didn't start out life with all these insights and. I would not describe myself as a happy child. And I had one of the things that only as an adult looking backwards I realized is that I had expectations put upon me which I couldn't achieve, which made me feel very unhappy. My father was a high achiever, more so than me by a margin. And he naturally hoped his young lad would be a high achiever too. But as a young lad, I most certainly wasn't. And there are reasons for that. I couldn't see very well. I was blind in one eye and very average in the other. I, I went through school having never seen the blackboard, <laughs> be able to read it. And um, so I didn't do very well. It wasn't until later. I didn't get glasses till I was 22 and at university and finally able to participate and catch up and realize that I wasn't silly. I was blind. And once I got over that, I was away, but also my poor eyesight and other things too. I mean, I was pretty rubbish at tennis because I never saw the ball. Um, you can name a sport, and I was pretty pretty rubbish at it. And I, for whatever reason, was very uncompetitive, and that's not by choice. It's just by evolutionary twist. You know, I, I realised the children around me were much more competitive and other people would be much more excited about winning, so I'd let them win, even if I could have won a running race. If there was someone who really wanted to win it more, I'd slow down. Or a sailing race, I sailed small boats for a while. And I, my father was rightly disappointed compared to if he'd had his expectations. And here was me. And I think my lack of competitiveness was sometimes interpreted as laziness. Well, it wasn't. It was just I wasn't individually driven as much as, you know, for my own purpose, as much as some others were. And that as I came to realize that later in life, looking back on it, ha, it made me really 
think about these expectations and how much sometimes they're put on us, not necessarily just by our parents, but by society in general. By advertising, you should look like this, you should smell like that, you should have one of these. You know, there are all these ex- ex- expectations being projected on, on us. And I decided at some age, and I'm going to make a number up in my mid-20s roughly, when this dawned on me, that I was going to reject all these blinking expectations that were put on me about what I should drive and how I should dress, what I must have. And I was just going to let things float and see where I ended up. And, and I did all sorts of silly things as a result. And I didn't dress very well. <laughs> Still don't. Um, but it was very liberating. It was an interesting experiment. I didn't remain in that space the whole time, but it was a, a very helpful little phase to go through. It was just this idea of rejecting all external expectations about how things should be. And this, I'll, I'll just let them be as they are and be happy with that for a while and see how things go. Yeah. Well, I think even understanding the fact that some of the expectations you have on yourself aren't even your own. You've just um, sort of, I guess, um, absorbed them from, you know, whether it's, you know, being certain people or, um, you know, media or marketing or advertising, um, that some of the things that you expect of yourself or your life have um, are not even your own. I think it's an, a very important point. Yes. And there's a whole in fact, nearly every industry is around setting expectations on us, not for our benefit, for theirs. Yeah, how you should feel, yeah, what you should look like, what you should wear, mm. drive, as you've, as you've alluded to. Um, what is the hardest part about what you're going through at the moment? What's the hardest part about dying? Oh, gosh, the hardest part about dying for me, not knowing when. So I can't plan and I don't know quite what to bite off. I haven't completed the book which was hard work. You know, it was um, physically hard for me. It's very hard for me to spend time at the computer sitting up because it's much easier for me to lie down, much much easier for my chest, and um, and to put thought in, you know, to think things through when I wasn't feeling well. And when I completed that, I said to myself, right, I'm going to be very, very careful about what other commitments I take on between now and being dead. Because I don't want to die mid-project regretting I couldn't finish something or putting myself under stress to the point that I'm no fun to be around. So the biggest challenge for me at the moment is given my health is deteriorating, but there's no end date. I've got no idea how it's going to drift out and how abrupt things will be. Is I don't know what I can bite off. I don't want to waste my time. And I don't want to bite off more than I can chew either. So that is, Mm. I, I find, the biggest challenge. And the second point to that, is, which is very much related to that, is making the decision about when to let go. Because it will come to that. At the moment, I haven't taken any morphine as in a specific example. I've used ibuprofen and other more conventional pain management. And there's a reason for that. Because when I start the morphine, it really is the final phase. If I start it, I'll never stop it. If I start it, it'll hurry things along to some extent. You know, it's, it's, it's the last bus stop, really. And, um, and, and when I, I've sort of mentally decided that when I've reached the point where I, I can't get by without morphine you know, or more dramatic pain relief, that's the point I'll probably let go and just... Just say, right, okay, just take a breath and 
that's it. Don't attempt anything else now. Just smile and and drift it away as much as he can make that decision. And that's tough to think about when is the right time because got, it's got to be not just for me, it's got to be for my family too. But um, yeah. I really wish sometimes, and I, I know nobody can, but I wish magically someone could say, oh, look, Sean, I had a little sneak in them. It's in my diary, but you're going to die on this date. You're going to be a little bit incompetent on this date. So, okay, great. So, good, I'll get a couple more roast ducks down me and whatever, whatever else I might want to do with the family and um, yeah, and, and, and plan. But I've been unable to plan. It's just, oh, well, it's, it is what it is, but that's the toughest part. Yeah, I can imagine. I can only imagine. Far out. Um, what do you think happens once we die? Oh, I'm probably with that musician. <laughs> I think that's the end of it. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd purely believe otherwise if there was any evidence, but um, I'm a very much evidence-based guy. Yeah. I don't. So, so the answer is I think you die, you die. And I know other people feel differently, and I'm very happy for them to feel differently. But for me, that is my view. Yeah. What, um, what advice would you give to someone who's going through a similar situation? You know, we've talked about what advice you would give to someone who was supporting someone, but if someone's listening and, you know, maybe they've recently had a, a diagnosis, um, you know, a terminal diagnosis, what advice would you give to them? What's been, I mean, this whole conversation is going to be full of advice that, you know, and wisdom that they're going to, you know, be able to, um, you know, put into their own sort of world but you know is there something else that that that's been particularly helpful for you or or something you would offer to someone else well, i guess my advice to someone else facing a similar situation was be very clear about what you can do and do it don't allow fear of the situation to stop you doing helpful and pragmatic things but accept the fact there'll be limits to what you can do and accept the reality you know, of, for the things that you can't influence. If indeed you are terminally unwell and there is nothing you can do about it, then just accept that. Um, don't, don't fight the unwinnable fight. Be positive, be hopeful, but, but don't, don't allow it in your mind to be a lost fight if you die. And in mind, don't see it as a failure or losing. It's just the way it is. We're all going to die. I mean, I thought really hard about what are the things I can do, my personally. And I thought, right, okay, my diet was already pretty good, but I'll make it better. <laughs> you know, I'm already pretty positive, but I'll, I'll be more positive. I tried. I took the things I thought would be helpful that were in my control, and I did them. And that gave me a bit of comfort. At least I've done what I can do. So I'm just now talking specifically about my health and survival chances rather than the broader picture of friends and family. Mm-hmm. So that would be my advice to anyone else is just be clear about what you can do and do it and accept the outcomes for the things you can't influence. Just don't don't fight the unwinnable fight. Yeah, that's that's you know, very true advice. And you know, one of the things you wrote in the in your blog was the most important important thing that I could do was to be happy. Dying is bad enough. Being miserable about it was a load too heavy for me to bear. And again, you coined that phrase which you've mentioned before, before earlier, which is uh, I'm not happy to die, but I will die happy. Yes, um, and to some extent, my whole approach has been selfish, and that and making it something I can 
survive, well, until I die. It's <laughs> mm. <laughs> silly to say it that way, doesn't it? Well, manage might be a better word. My acceptance makes the situation manageable for me. Yeah, I completely understand. What What are you most proud of? You know, and I guess this is a question that I ask to to everyone that I've I've had on the podcast. And um, you know, it, it's not so much related to um, you know your 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 illness at all, but you know, just you know, it, it's an interesting question when you you know you think about you know maybe you've done a bit of thinking about your life, but is there something that stands out to you? You've done a lot of remarkable things, both in a in your professional life, but also in a um, you know in, in the work that you've done with with young people. Is there is there something or one thing that stands out to you when you look back, um, you know, at the life you've lived to date and think that man, I'm I'm really proud of that. Yeah, well, I might just I might just be proving that I have a really bad memory. But one of the things I'm really proud of is that I'm not sitting here looking over my shoulder thinking, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't have done that. I can hand on heart say, generally, when presented with the choice, I've made the ethical decision in business when I could have. There have been plenty of opportunities. I could have personally made a whole lot of money at the expense of those around me, paid myself a whole lot more. I haven't. I have always done what has been the right thing. and I'm really pleased to be able to say that is the case. I am really proud of the fact that even when I've been really busy, and I've always been busy, uh, that I've, I've, I've always worked very hard, seven days a week, travelled a lot. Um, I've, I've just, I've always put in the hours, and yet I've made the decision to balance that with doing things in my community, whether it's mentoring young people or. We had a situation in Nelson where I lived. There was a homeless gentleman living on the main street, getting a lot of grief with the council. And it was coming to a head. There were some angry people in the community hassling him and life for him was getting grim and there was no no happy outcomes for anybody. And despite the fact that I was really, really busy and travelling a lot, I put my hand up and went into bat on his behalf and represented him to the council and got a really happy outcome. It's things like that that I'm really proud of. I, I didn't walk by. I mean, it would have been very easy. I could have totally justified and no one would have argued with me if I'd said, look, I'm just too busy. I travel every single week for three days out of town. The days that I'm back, I'm as busy as heck. I'm mentoring. I'm running a karate club. There's no way I should be the guy who steps in and helps that homeless family. But in those situations, I've done what I would reflect on and say was the right thing. It was the community-minded thing. I'm, I'm just really pleased that I can look back and say, well, I didn't wait until I was retired to put back. I did it as I went when I could. Yeah, that's amazing. That's, um, you know, I hope that, um, I hope that, you know, anyone can, can you know, reflect on their life and, and have something like that. That's certainly something, um, you know, probably one of the most profound answers I've, I've ever heard. So, and again, a testament, testament to you. With you know, someone of you know your your wisdom and, and intellect. What what do you wish everyone knew? You know, if you if you had a, a, a you know a billboard that was going to get seen by the world, or you could whisper into the ears of of everyone on the planet. You know, what would be your your advice or your you know what, what do you wish everyone else knew? Well, first of all, I wish I was as wise and well-educated as you suggest, but um, in terms of for for other people, there are a couple of fallback things for me. 
one, in fact, there's one I'm currently writing, and every time I sell my book at the moment, I, I write a little, a little quote in there, a little from, from me, which is simply this. Our civilization is founded on the care we take of our youth. And for me, that's very important. If we were to, as a community, properly invest in our youth for, say, 10 years or 15 years, we would eliminate the vast majority of social problems that we face. If young people grew up in a safe and loving home, they provided the care and educational opportunities they needed, many of these cyclic intergenerational problems would go away. And I'm not saying that's easy to do, but it's worth reflecting on just how much we would achieve if we did that and then to say, well, you know what, the goal might be hard, but the payoff is so huge, at least we should take some steps down that path. Because really our civilization would end if we stopped investing in our youth and it'll be simply a product of how much we invest in our youth. So that would be one of the things I would say I wish everybody felt that way and as a community we invested more in our young people because we'd see a massive benefit in a very small number of years. And I guess in a broader thing, I would come back to this idea that I think would be lovely if our community operated with this as, as its centre, and that is you are strong when people feel safe around you. As an idea of masculinity, for me, that is much more powerful than what we've perhaps allowed our society to be centred around, where we see strength as when people are dominant, with someone we're a bit scared of. And, and that's not the way I see strength. That's, for me, is a weakness. Those are weak people. We, we fear weak people with no boundaries. Um, so those would be the two ideas, I guess, the, the main one being this idea that our civilization is founded on the care we take of our youth. Yeah, both of those, um, you know, uh, very insightful. And, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky and I guess I have to you know, thank you as well um, for, for the book that you've, you've, you've passed on to me. Um, and it does have that quote in the front. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's a very interesting way to think about it and, um, and so very true as well. Um, you know, before we finish up, um, you know, I've alluded to your blog a couple of times and obviously you've got a book as well. Um, what's the best way for people to read your blog or um, get a copy of your book? Well, look, the, the website for the book is onelongsummerbook.com and it's only available through the website. I don't sell it in bookstores and I don't sell it on Amazon for a simple reason is that if I did, there's not enough margin left to give any money to charity. And one of the main purposes of writing the book was to raise money for youth charities. Um, so you can read the book online from the website. First five chapters are freely available. Just don't, don't want anyone to spend money on it <laughs> if they don't enjoy it. Um, and, and that's it. It's only available there. And it's been a book specifically written for young people to get them thinking about their lives to learn some basic lessons that we, we should all learn perhaps. And, um, and I'm hoping one that will motivate them to get out and be brave and bold and be happy. 
the book is written a little bit from the perspective of being read to a child. So it's got messages in there for the adult as well as the child. But look, I'll let people explore it and make of it what they will. But that's the answer is that, that web address. And my personal web address is simply Sean of Nelson. Um, dot nz so it's s-e-a-n-o-f nelson dot nz and there there is a page there called thoughts which i've just put a few papers up i've written a few things um that my customers have been asking me for it's basically summaries of some of the public speaking i've done in the past and, and i will add more material to that as i am able um but yeah those are the, the two locations Yes, yeah, one long summer book.co.nz and uh, Sean of Nelson.co.nz as well. Yeah, it's, it's one long summer book.com. Oh, .com, yeah. Yep, and Sean of Nelson.nz. Yeah. Wonderful. Hey, um, look, Sean, I, you know, I said at the, the end of our, our first conversation how grateful I was for, for your time, um, you know, for the, the wisdom that you've shared. And, um, look, you are a, a remarkable man. And this is both these conversations have been, um, you know, amazing. And, like, if I'm completely honest, I don't quite know, you know, how to, to sign this off and to, to, to pass on my gratitude and thanks enough. I, you know, the, the glory of the internet nowadays is that this is going to live on, you know, you know, past you and, and myself. And, and I really hope that, um, you know, us having this conversation can, um, you know, you know, help people in some way, whether they're going through something or whether just your general wisdom can help people, you know, live the life that um, that they want and w- which they're capable of. Um, I know that there's, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of young people around the country that have been a, um, you know, recipient of your support and your time and your energy and your effort. And I know um, the gratitude that I'm expressing is, is will be similar from, um, you know, a huge amount of people, both from your work, again, in the community, but also so in a, in a professional capacity as well. So um, I'm grateful for your time. And I thought maybe today um, we could end with you reciting the poem which you've uh, written on your coffin. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, look, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. And if anyone finds this interesting or helpful, then I'll be a mixture of very pleased and amazed. Um the poem I put on my coffin is a very short poem, was just to help communicate my um, perspective on death. And it's simply this Death came, I smiled, death smiled, we embraced. Sean Thomas, you're an amazing man. I um mate, I wish you I wish you peace. Thank you very, very, very much. You're most welcome, Maddie. Thank you. Goodbye. And there it is. Look, I I don't quite know what to say or how to end um, an episode like that with Sean. Um, You know, I hope that that this podcast, that conversation can help. You know, it's a it's a topic that we don't talk about very often at all. And Sean is a, an amazing man and a and a very unique perspective. You know, he's got that sort of balance of of. Um, you know, the mechanical engineer, but the interest in existentialism and psychology, and it's just, um, it's made for a, a very 
interesting conversation on the subject of death, which um, again is something we don't talk about very much. And he's very open, and I'm so grateful for his openness. You know, he said to me before this, before we hit record, that no question was off limits for this. And um, you know, for someone in his situation to say that is, um, you know, is, is remarkable. And I, you know, he's done some amazing, amazing things over his life, and um, you know, he's helped a huge amount of people, um, which he sort of alluded to. You know, some of them there as well, and um, you know, he's going to leave a big hole. In this world and it um, you know it's, it saddens me um, to think about that but at the same time I'm so grateful that he was able to you know share his time today and his wisdom and I, I hope this does have a positive effect or has had a positive effect on anyone that has been able to listen to um, the things that Sean's talked about today so thank you um, you know so much to Sean for his time for being so open and for sharing I'm incredibly grateful for him and um, and uh, you know I wish him all the best with the you know his journey ahead um, thank you also to you thank you for listening to the podcast for checking out the road to success podcast I you know I always say it, but I do love having these conversations I get to people talk to people like Sean and, and the fact that other people can can listen to them and, and enjoy them as well really does you know mean the world to me so thank you so much for checking out the podcast if if, if you did think that today's podcast was there was value in it or you think that there's someone that, that might be able to take something from it that could help them then please feel free to share the podcast you can hit share on whichever platform you listen to your podcast on um, or alternatively you can just tell someone to check out the Road to Success podcast we're on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts and if you want to hear more of podcasts like this then um, just like or subscribe to the Road to Success podcast but Look, once again, thank you so much to Sean. Thank you for listening. That certainly is a conversation that um, I won't forget. And Sean is an amazing guy, and I'm certainly um, so sad that we're losing him. But um, I'm also so grateful that I got to have the conversation that I did with him today. And look, if nothing else, I hope that Sean's insights can change the way that you know we live our lives now. Because ultimately, I think his message is that you know one day our lives are all going to come to an end but we've got every moment between now and then to make the most of and um, I hope that this conversation can inspire us all to do that. Thank you for listening. Love you. See ya. Bye.